Hi, I'm Carmen LeBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LeBurge on Faith Radio. Good morning. Good morning on this 29th day of June 2022. It is Forgiveness Day or the Day of Forgiveness here on the Faith Radio Network. You're going to hear um, all day about the power of forgiveness. You're going to hear about God's grace in forgiving us, removing our sins as far as the East is from the West. You're going to hear about our need to forgive one another. You're going to hear about the challenge of living in unforgiveness, um, which, by the way, is just no way to live. So welcome to the Day of Forgiveness here on Faith Radio. I want to talk for a moment about um, the Redemption Project. It was actually something that Van Jones of CNN engaged in a number of years ago. Um, It is an ongoing effort um, to bring criminal offenders into um, a relationship, a redemptive relationship with the family members of those um, whose lives they took. And if you want to hear and experience stories of redemption, this is one place you can do it. It's called the Redemption Project. It's um, it's actually um, active in all 50 states through the criminal justice system. And you say to yourself, what? What? Yeah, because everybody knows you can't live in unforgiveness. You can't live as one who is unforgiven, and you can't live as a family um, with unforgiveness toward even the person who did the very worst thing you could ever possibly imagine. So there's a redemption project in the culture, but there's a bigger redemption project going on, um, and the one in the culture simply reflects this one, and that is God's redemption project. God's got a redemption project with you and me and everybody else. God is the one who alone is in a position to forgive. And so when we talk about Seeking forgiveness from God, which is where this conversation has to start, because if I am not a person living uh, as forgiven in Christ, I don't have a reservoir of forgiveness out of which uh, to forgive others. And I also don't know what it means to forgive others as I'm forgiven in Christ Jesus if I'm not forgiven first. So let us first seek the forgiveness from God. Um, And then, yeah, we're going to have to seek forgiveness from the person or the people against whom we've sinned. That is really hard. It's somehow, I mean, somehow strangely easier to go before uh, the holy eternal God and ask forgiveness than it is for some of us to go um, in humility and go seek forgiveness from the person or the people against whom we've sinned. So which is harder for you? ask, Ask that question. Which do you find more difficult? Do you find it more difficult to go before the Lord and confess your sins and ask God to forgive you in Christ Jesus? Because that's a very costly um, conversation. That's a very costly conversation. That's a blood of Jesus conversation. That's a death of Christ upon the cross conversation. So why is it um, somehow easier to do that than it is to go to another human being against whom we've sinned 
and in humility, acknowledge our sin and ask them to forgive us. We're going to talk this morning about forgiveness, the power of forgiveness in our own lives, the source of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And so maybe just spend a minute in front of the mirror. I mean, you know, real uh, real mirror or virtual mirror. Stand in front of the mirror for a moment and just allow God to reveal the places and the spaces where you've been hiding sin from him as if that could ever be done and where you're harboring unforgiveness towards someone else because thanks be to God he doesn't harbor unforgiveness toward us he offers it freely in Christ Jesus our Lord welcome to the day of forgiveness on my faith radio In Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Such a great consolation. It's an incredible, incredible promise. In Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. I want you to just um, relish that for a moment this morning. In Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. As far as the East is from the West, so far has God removed our sins from us. Whew. Today is the day of forgiveness here at Faith Radio. If you um, have a story of forgiveness that you would like to share, um, you can do so on the text line, 877-933-2484. If your story takes longer than that to tell, you can always email me, Carmen, at MyFaithRadio.com. We talk about um, we talk about forgiveness, and I look for stories, particularly um, of those forgiven like by Christ, in the presence of Christ, you know, I turn to the scriptures and I, you know, maybe the first person who comes to mind is Peter. Um, Peter, certainly one of the closest friends of Jesus during his lifetime. You know, Peter, one of the, you know, of the of the, of the Peter, James and John um, triad that gets to experience so many extraordinary things. And, uh, you know, obviously the miracles of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, but Peter's, you know, one of just three disciples who witnessed the transfiguration firsthand. Peter is a close, dear friend of Jesus. Peter is um, one of the intimate ones, one of the heroes of the gospel's advance in the book of Acts. Um, The gospel of Mark is really a record of the gospel of Peter. It's Peter's perspective on Jesus. Um, But Peter sinned against Jesus on the night that Jesus most needed his friend. On the night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, Jesus was also denied by Peter. Peter denied ever knowing Jesus. Jesus was tried and crucified, and Peter was, yes, deeply ashamed of failing his friend in his hour of need. So what happens then what happens then? Well, we know the testimony of Peter. We have First and Second Peter. We have the Book of Acts. Um, we have the Gospel of Mark, which is really the Gospel of Peter, written in Mark's hand. Um, so we know that Jesus did not hold that sin against Peter forever, right? 
And by grace, we have this scene recorded in the 21st chapter of the Gospel of John, where we witness uh, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They spent all night casting their nets, and they caught nothing. And I'm betting that for Peter, James, and John, it was a reminder of another such night years before um, that they had spent all night fishing and caught nothing, and Jesus showed up, and they had this great catch, catch of fish, and Jesus called them to leave their nets um, and follow him. And so three years have passed since that first encounter with Jesus. They've seen Jesus perform miracles. They've sat under his teaching. They've walked with him. They've seen him arrested, mocked, beaten, crucified, dead, and buried. And here they are, back in the boat on the same body of water where they met Jesus the first time. John recalls it this way. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not recognize him. Jesus said to them, guys, you have any fish? And they said, no. And he said to them, well, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and they were not even able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And Simon Peter um, uh, took off his outer garment, put on his outer garment, which is kind of funny, put his coat back on to jump in anyway, um, and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples uh, came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. They were not far away from the land, about a hundred yards off. And they got out onto the land and they saw that Jesus had already built a fire and there were fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have. Um, and so Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153. John notes, which I always think is curious that they bothered to count them. And then John took note of that. Um, And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast with me. One of the disciples dared to ask "Um, who are you? Even though they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to them. And so with the fish, which, you know, their minds have to be ringing here, right? With the um, with the times that he broke the bread and the fish, uh, you know, uh, enough to feed a boy at lunch. And instead he fed 5,000 men and uh, not including the women and children. So probably like 9,000 people and there were 12 baskets of leftovers. Yeah, that is something that they witnessed probably more than once. And maybe they're also remembering, um, you know, on the night of the Passover when Jesus literally becomes the Passover lamb, where he changes the um, the Passover meal into what we know as the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper where he breaks the bread and he gives it to them. And he says, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Now, this is the third time, picking up at verse 14 in John 21. This is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead and when they'd finished breakfast. So there's this reconciliation over a meal, which I think is so important, right? There's this shared grace. We've talked about that. We've talked about the way that a common table can create a common ground upon which we can have common conversations that lead to uncommon grace. So I want you to just consider that for a moment. Jesus, you know, he fed them. He nourished them. He, you know, they probably talked about how bad the fishing was overnight. Um, And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, well, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And Jesus then said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? Now, why was Peter grieved? 
My guess is Peter was recalling acutely in his heart the three times that he denied Jesus. Do you know him? No, I don't know him. Do you know him? No, I don't know him. Do you know him? No, I've never even met him. Jesus is giving this gracious opportunity for Peter to publicly and openly and personally declare his love for the Lord. But the need to be forgiven pierced Peter. It grieved him. When Jesus said a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him a third time, feed my sheep. Forgiveness is a powerful relational change agent. Do you need to be forgiven today? Have you sought the Lord? The forgiveness of God is available. And through that reservoir of of unending grace, we also have the capacity to forgive others. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on this day of forgiveness here at Faith Radio, and we'll be right back. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Do you need today to be forgiven? I know I do. Every single day. A reminder here on the text line from Reverend Castro, a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together. The Christian faith is, all caps, forgiveness of sin. Nothing more and nothing less. Um, Forgiveness is um, certainly essential uh, it's necessary. It's um, it's not hard to come by if you're in Christ, and it's impossible to come by if you're not in Christ. So, yes, the Christian faith is forgiveness of sin, nothing more and nothing less. Um, when we talk about forgiveness and our need for it and our need to extend it to others, we're really talking about the substantial healing of relationships. And so in Christ— God offers to us this substantial healing of a relationship with himself. Like we have sinned first and foremost against God. Um, and so we have this deep need to be forgiven. It's our greatest need. Whatever, whatever our other needs might be, our greatest need, our deepest need is the need to be forgiven. And so I think we often think of sins against one another and we hold the sins that others have committed against us. And that creates uh, all kinds of relational brokenness. And so part of what we can do on this day of forgiveness is consider, you know, where do we need substantial healing in our relationships? And it all starts with God. Absolutely. But I want you to just pause for a moment and think about your relationships with your parents, your siblings, your spouse, your children, your neighbors, your coworkers, um, people with whom you politically disagree. I mean, I don't know. Where are your substantially broken relationships? Where do you need substantial healing? That's going to be the challenge set before us today. Because as soon as we start down that path, we, because we're sinners, tend to... Um, Start making a who send list. Well, who send? It's a wormhole of blame and shame, by the way. Do you remember the time that Jesus encountered the man born blind and everybody wanted Jesus to identify the sinner? Who send? Who send? Who send Jesus? Who send this man or his parents? 
Let's out the sinner. How does Jesus respond? Or the woman who they bring before Jesus, you know, caught in the very act of adultery. She sinned. She sinned. Stone the sinner. And Jesus is like, uh, well, let he who has no sin cast the first stone. So when we're talking about the man born blind, um, what and, and the woman caught in adultery and every other person Jesus ever encounters, what does Jesus always do? He always glorifies God. He demonstrates the character of God. He heals. He forgives. Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. No matter the cause of the brokenness, the answer is always God's redeeming power revealed in Christ. God has the power to forgive. But in order that we'll believe that Jesus, who heals broken bodies and performs miracles and lives um, lives to heal and bless and redeem, dies that we might live. Like, so that we will believe that Jesus has the power to forgive. Jesus also like heals substantial brokenness between people and in people. Do you remember the time that the four friends brought the man to Jesus, the the man who was paralyzed? They were hoping to have the broken body restored. But what does Jesus do? Jesus looks at the man and he deals first with the deeper concern, the spiritual concern, the need for forgiveness. We don't know what the unresolved sin is in that man's life, but we do know that Jesus recognized that it was paralyzing. Are you living in unforgiveness? Is it paralyzing you? When Jesus says to that man, that paralytic on the mat, your sins are forgiven. The theological police of the day, the Pharisees, respond by asking, who does this guy think he is? Only God has the power to forgive sins. And Jesus smiles and says, yes, you're right. And so to convince you that I have the very power of God to forgive, to forgive sins, I'm going to do that which you actually think is more difficult. And turning to the man who is physically paralyzed, in addition to being spiritually paralyzed, Jesus says, stand up, take up your bed and walk. Now, this is where there should be a drum roll in the Bible, but there's not. There's not like a a way to do that. But here's the drum roll sound effect in the scriptures. The man gets up, picks up his bed, and walks away. Forgiveness is an eternal and an internal work that walks itself out in a life enlivened in Christ, where a person paralyzed by sin and unforgiveness gets up and walks into the real world of real external relationships substantially healed. So if you ask in Jesus Christ, God will forgive you today. And then you will have a reservoir out of which to forgive others. This is the day of forgiveness here at Faith Radio. I'd love to hear your forgiveness um, stories or your prayers, um, inviting us in to pray with you and for you as you seek substantial healing in broken relationships that need to be um, forgiven today. You can text me, 877-933-2484. You can always email me um, at carmen at myfaithradio.com. This is uh, the Day of Forgiveness here on Faith Radio. 
When you think about the uh, stories in your own life where you have sinned against someone or someone has sinned against you, and you recognize that that has re- resulted in a in a broken relationship, and you want to seek forgiveness, and you want to extend forgiveness, do you have a reservoir out of which to do that? We We really, in terms of forgiveness, we can only give to others what we have received from God. Um, And living in unforgiveness is literally no way to live. And so I'm inviting you today into this day of forgiveness to get before the Lord and ask him to forgive you, ask him for substantial healing, and then ask him to reveal to you those relationships that are broken, that are severed, where there is a need for reconciliation. And ask him to give you a reservoir of forgiveness out of which to forgive others who have sinned against you. And the humility to go and seek forgiveness from those against whom we have sinned. That's, I think, the hardest part. I think that's the hardest part. I think we find it um, easier to go before God and ask forgiveness in Christ Jesus and then to uh, forgive others as we in Christ have been forgiven. But then there is that other most difficult of challenges, and that is to seek forgiveness from others against whom we have sinned. So we're asking God today to reveal our need to do that as well, and then give us the humility and the courage to go and um, and do it, seek it. Marvin Olasky um, shared a very, very personal testimony of both the need for forgiveness and the way God is working forgiveness out in his own heart and life. The book is Lament for a Father. My conversation with Marvin Olasky, next. Sometimes at night I'd lie awake Longing inside for my father's Marvin Olasky is back. Um, we have talked on a prior occasion about his book, Lament for a Father, A Journey to Understanding and Forgiveness. He is back to talk with us about Father's Day, to talk with us during this month of forgiveness focus at Faith Radio. So Marvin, um, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Well, thank you, Carmen. Good to be with you. So it's been, um, you know, it's been a minute since you um, published Lament for a Father. Maybe just talk with us about the year or so since the book has come out and your reflections on the conversations you've already had about it. Well, I've heard from people who had really brutal fathers or fathers who were drunks or addicts or so forth. Uh, My father wasn't any of those. He was a a uh, good basic father. He provided for us. He was always there. Uh, but he essentially withdrew. So he ignored my brother and myself. And while there weren't any terrible things for which I would be unforgiving towards him, I suppose I did have resentment for many years about just being ignored. Mm. So one of the things that I appreciate um, is how careful you are to like literally unpack through boxes and through research, you know, literally unpack things about your dad. So maybe introduce us to Eli Olasky. You know, who who oh, sure. was he? What did you learn about him? Well, um, 
one thing I learned starting out in this research is that uh, ignoring is not the same as forgiveness. Mm. Uh, so I realized at a certain point that I should try to learn more about him, find out why he was so distant. So I thought there would be a clue in his college records. Uh, he went to uh, Harvard in the late 1930s at a time when there was a, a quota on discrimination against Jews going to Harvard. So he was a smart guy. And I asked for his records. And finally, after producing uh, investig uh, um, after producing documents and so forth to prove that I was related to him, they, they sent them. And uh, those records actually deepened the mystery. Mm. So tell, tell me about that, because I think, you know, this desire to know your dad, I think, and feel known by your dad, even though that's not something that he particularly expressed. Um, I think that is inside each and every one of us, no matter who we are. Um, but how did the mystery grow for you once you actually had access to more, I mean, technically more information? Sure. My mother was very disappointed in him. And so she mm. nagged him a lot as I was growing up. Uh, she said that he was lazy that he probably didn't love her because if he if he did, he would work harder. Uh, and I think I absorbed that. I, in a sense, looked at my father through her eyes. But then when I saw his, his records, he was a hugely ambitious teenager. Uh, he uh, worked very hard. He applied to Harvard once and was turned down. So he took another year. Uh, he had already graduated from high school, but he took another year at uh, somehow getting into a feeder school for Harvard, uh, namely Boston Latin, and got there that time, applied with a whole different set of recommendations. Instead of recommendations saying, oh, he's a, he's a fine Jewish lad, the recommendations were about how he was a, a manly man, uh, a person who was trustworthy, which essentially was, was code words for, well, he's not, he doesn't have sort of some Jewish practices that you would dislike. He's, he's become very much like the uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, wasps who had advent, uh, an advantage in applying. So he, remade, he redid himself, and he got recommendations to that extent. He went to Harvard. He had trouble at first uh, academically because he was working very hard and also taking classes at a Hebrew teacher's college. Uh, so... He, had, he worked 80-hour weeks, essentially, for his first couple of years in college. And still, he managed to pull his grades up until he was able to graduate with honors. Very ambitious, very hardworking, completely different from the way my mother characterized him. You know, when I think about um, this, this passage uh, in the book about it happens in 1957, and it's you recalling this drive down U.S. Route 1 to Hollywood, Florida, um, where your dad was going to be the principal of a Hebrew school, you know, that students would attend after public school let out. It seems to me, as like I read that, uh, you know, that he is a person who is at some level very passionate about the preservation of the things of the faith. And yet, in the context of this particular story that you tell, it's actually about the fact that the su the food being served isn't kosher. I mean, it's at Howard Johnson's. And um, and you make you ask a question about that. And, you know, your dad says it, it doesn't matter. It's not important. Right. So there's this there seems to be this tension between the things of the Jewish faith are important to him, but then sometimes not. Right. No, that's that's perceptive. He had his own way of defining Judaism. 
Uh, it wasn't religious. I got a call, got a hold of his senior thesis, which basically showed that he had accepted what was taught at Harvard, essentially the Darwinian view that we all arise by chance and the view of what's called higher criticism, that the Bible was just one more book from the ancient Middle East and didn't have anything about, didn't have any God stuff in it. It's, it's not as if it was uh, honoring God or coming from God or anything like that. It was just one more book. So he wanted to preserve Jewish culture, but he didn't want to preserve the religion. Uh, in a sense, it was like a donut. There was nothing in the middle. Mm -hmm. And that was part of the mystery. Why did he come to that conclusion? Well, first in college, it's not hard. That's what he was taught. But what happened afterwards that he thought that preserving Jewish culture was so important? And what I realized is that he had been in the army during World War II, not on the front lines, but in a support capacity. But the real atrocities that he saw were not in battle, but right after the war ended. He had a good knowledge of German. And so, as best I can tell from the records, he was dispatched to go to the concentration camps right after the war and help the survivors get into what were called displaced person camp and just make sure they weren't going to starve once the war was over. And he must have seen, from other accounts I've seen of people encountering the concentration camps, he must have seen the, the dead bodies stacked up like firewood, like firewood, the people totally emaciated and diseased. Uh, he would have seen the results the living results of the Holocaust, as well as some of the dead results. Mm -hmm. And I think that made him want to preserve Judaism, because after all, Hitler had wanted to wipe it out, wipe out the Jewish people. So he wanted to preserve that. He felt a strong sense of hoping to preserve the culture, but the essence of the culture, namely belief in God, he didn't believe in. So he was in this position where he was upholding something that he didn't really believe in, but he wanted to uphold almost in an existentialist way, almost in a stoic way. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, I think, led to his stoicism towards us, not paying a whole lot of attention, but nevertheless wanting to provide. We're talking with Marvin Olasky. We're talking about his book, Lament for a Father. And I've come to understand the title in two ways. Um, I think at first, Marvin is lamenting for a father. And then... Um, he is lamenting on that father's behalf. It is a journey to understanding and forgiveness. You're listening to Mornings with Car Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and we'll be right back. Picking up in our conversation with Marvin Olasky about his book, Lament for a Father. Um, Marvin, as we, um, as we move around in this journey with you uh, of understanding and forgiveness, I'm wondering if there's a point in time when you arrive at this, um, this kind of revelation that you share about your own perception of yourself um, maybe not having asked all the questions you might have asked, maybe not showing the level of interest in your dad that might have provoked him to talk about deeper things and um, and share with you more who he was. Yes, he uh, he ignored me and then I ignored him. Hmm. And I wish looking back, 
uh, he he died when I was uh, 34 years old. And so often in 20s and 30s, we're, we're, we're very concerned with our own career progress and marriage and so forth. Uh, so I was self-absorbed. Lots of people are, but I, I blame myself for uh, not asking questions, not pushing. Uh, the couple of times I did, he just pushed back and said he wasn't interested in discussing it. But if I had persisted, then maybe I would have actually learned something. But I did not. Uh, and... That bothered me initially, uh, still does in some ways, but um, I think learned, I think I learned to forgive him as I learned more about why he did what he did. Uh, in other words, he, uh, he managed to, to do well as an undergraduate at Harvard, but uh, in graduate school, uh, he didn't have some of the social graces and uh, uh, he was he was kicked out of graduate school, which he never divulged, I don't think, to uh, to his wife, my mother, uh, because he was a little bit ashamed of that. He uh, was nagged by his wife. It wasn't a happy marriage, but he but he stuck with it. And so the more I learned about him, the more I could realize why he acted the way he did, what changed from his ambition to his stoicism. And, yeah, I could forgive him for that. And when I could forgive him, I also, in a sense... Uh, particularly because I believe in Christ and and our God of forgiveness, I could forgive myself at that point for not having for not having persevered. But as I think back at him, I think uh, about him. I think it was a very honorable thing that he did because, you know, I've seen enough episodes of Law and Order or other detective programs on TV to see how often uh, police and detectives who deal with grisly things often keep that within themselves. They don't want to burden their wife or children by telling them what they saw. And that has a psychological consequence, but it's a very honorable thing to do. It's a protecting thing to do. And so I actually think my father protected uh, my, uh, my mother and my brother and myself by not talking about what he saw, all the dead bodies and all the macabre things. Uh, I think if he had talked about that, then maybe I would have grown up with a certain sense of being besieged, I would have grown up with a with a sense of oh, there's anti-Semitism all over the place, and I might have thought then oh, anti-Semite equals Christian. I'm not going to want to have anything to do with Christians, but because he did not tell me those those terrible things that people who called themselves Christians did, I didn't grow up with that prejudice, and thus I was more open to eventually uh, when I was 26 actually uh, hearing the gospel and responding. For which I'm um, very, very grateful and um, so thankful for the ways in which, you know, over the course of so many years, I have appreciated your work and your labor um, in in journalism. Um, I'd, I'd appreciate, Marvin, if you talk a little bit about the word lament, because there is this invitation to the reader to join you in the lament, not only for your father, but for a father. Can you speak to that? Well, sure. The Bible is full of laments. There actually is a, a book named Lamentations, but in some ways all, all 66 books uh, have lament in them. The Psalms, a lot of them are lamenting. And in fact, if you, if you read through the book of Genesis, then sometimes it's taught as a series of exemplary stories, the great heroes of the faith and so forth. And, and yes, they were heroes, but just about all of them also had dysfunctional families. Uh, 
and and I could go into the details on that, but better for people to read it them read it themselves with that view in mind. Uh, the Bible is full of laments. In fact, our our existence, especially our existence apart from Christ, is a lamentable existence. So we shouldn't be afraid of lament. Uh, uh, sometimes we hear incitements or inducements. Well, come to Christ because you'll have victory, victory through Jesus. And there is a victory of a sort, but there's also a lament. We realize that we are, and I'm quoting here uh, Tim Keller, uh, we are uh, more sinful, uh, in fact, wicked than we ever imagined, but we're also more beloved than we ever imagined. And both of those things are really important to keep in mind. We are sinners, but God nevertheless loves us. And that's remarkable and shows not that we're wonderful, but that God is wonderful. So, Marvin, as we conclude our conversation, and thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk not only about your book, but your experience of, or as a son, seeking to know a father. Talk about this desire that we have to be known by the father and to know the father. Well, yes. Um, yeah, we do. And why that is, I, I think there is something uh, deep, deep inside us to want to know not only where we're going with our uh, ability now through Christ's sacrifice to step heavenward, but also know where we came from. And one of the things that I, that I learned through this, and I think other people can learn, and by the way, the, way, the reason I started writing this book is because I wrote a column uh, explaining a little bit about how my father never played catch with me, and then got lots of letters from readers saying, oh, the same thing happened to me, and boy, I, I wish I knew more about my father. So this, this thing is deep within, within us. We have this desire to, uh, to, to know where we came from. And as I learned more about my father, I also then had to explore more about my mother, uh, why she was the way she was, and why she nagged so much and was so disappointed. And I learned more about her background and what she went through. And a lot of that came from her father, my grandfather. And I learned about what he went through back in the Russian Empire. And uh, I had to do a lot of research, but a lot is now available on the Internet. And I could learn what happened to him. And this whole thing of where, where this comes from, why these disappointments, and then why we take it out on others, rather than blaming particular people, the more I learned, the more I realized how far back it goes, uh, sin going through the generations. And it made me feel uh, like the folks in the Bible who say this, this wretched load of sin, how can I be relieved from it? And uh, made me appreciate more. The only way we can relieve, be relieved from it is through Christ. Because, you know, there are, you know, where does one sin come from? We'll look at the previous sin, the previous sin. And, uh, you know, there's a story about a, uh, a person who uh, talked to a scientist uh, and said, well, I believe the, the world is sitting on the back of a giant turtle. And huh. the scientist scoffed at her and said, well, okay, what's that turtle on the back of? Well, that turtle's in the back of another turtle. Oh, all right. And where's that turtle come from? How far down does it go? And she says, oh, it's turtles all the way down. Now, <laughs> that's, not, that's not a good understanding of science. Uh, and the way the universe is, but it actually is a pretty good understanding of sin and our human condition. It goes far, far back to one afternoon in the Garden of Eden, and uh, the only way can be relieved, we can be relieved from it is through, is through God's mercy uh, as shown in Christ. 
Marvin, thank you so much um, for joining us today. Thank you for the transparency of the book, Lament for a Father. Thank you for the invitation um, to join you on the journey to understanding and forgiveness. And thank you for um, the book ending where it does, which is kind of with no conclusion, kind of with no particular resolution, because I think that the journey is one that each of us are on. Um, and for those of us who lost our dads before we knew them well, for one reason or another, um, the invitation to lament for a father on our own journey is um, is so essential and important. So thank you so much. Well, and thank you, Carmen, and, and thank you for your God-glorifying work. Well, we appreciate you so much. That's Marvin Olasky. You can find him on Twitter, Marvin Olasky. The book is Lament for a Father. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. On this day of forgiveness, I thought that um, reminding us of some forgiveness stories over the course of time might be uh, might be helpful. There, there are lots of programs in the culture where you know people are making very real efforts to inspire uh, forgiveness, um, and particularly when a crime has been committed. There, there's this. I mean, it is woven now into the criminal justice system here in the United States of America that there be these redemptive efforts. And so if you're not familiar with programs like Breaking the Cycle, um, you know, you you, you might want to check some of those out. So I'm thinking here uh, about the story of um, Steve McDonald, Steve McDonald, uh, a New York City police um, department detective. He died uh, January of 2017. He was shot in the line of duty in 1986. And so this is like one of those complete stories because um, Steve is no longer, you know, here with us. Um, The injury that he sustained in the shooting confined him to a wheelchair. He used a breathing machine. Um, But he made a ministry of reconciliation and forgiveness out of his experience. He spent years... um, going from place to place and talking about not only his own experience, but um, why forgive, which is the title of his book. So um, the the question of forgiveness and the need to um, forgive is is extraordinary. And if we don't forgive, then we live with this bitterness that prevents us from ever fully living and certainly from uh, producing the kind of fruit that God would um, have us produce in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, um, faithfulness, and self-control. Like it's, you cannot produce good fruit from a bitter root and forgiveness. um, It poisons the soil. It poisons the soil of our lives. So um, 
New York uh, City police detective uh, Steve McDonald walked into Central Park on the afternoon of July the 12th, 1986. No reason to expect anything out of the ordinary was going to happen. There had been a string of recent bicycle thefts and petty crimes in the area. Um, And so, you know, they're just walking around and they're doing their daily routine, walking their beat. And they come across a cluster of what are described as, you know, suspicious looking teenagers. What group of teenagers isn't suspicious looking, by the way? Um, They, you know, they have a a conversation and um, Steve then acknowledges that he doesn't remember what happened next. Um, First responders found uh, him um, sitting on the ground, um, covered in blood um, and and both of these officers crying. Um, Steve spent 18 months in the hospital. Steve spent um, years learning to speak and breathe. He was paralyzed. Um, He was on a breathing machine. And out of it, he not only forgave um, his assailant, he turned um, his what might have been revenge into a ministry. Um, Why bring this up? Because the stories of others' ability to forgive the most grievous of acts against them inspires us to forgive the things that happen in our own lives as well. Who do you need to forgive? Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.